If you would turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 7, I'd like to read for us verses 44 through 53. Again, if you listen to the Lord's word. Our fathers had the tabernacle of testimony in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern which he had seen. And having received it in their turn, our fathers brought it with in with Joshua upon dispossessing the nations whom God drove out before our fathers until the time of David. David found favor in God's sight and asked that he might find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. However, the Most High does not dwell in houses made by human hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and earth is the footstool of my feet. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what place is there for my repose? Was it not my hand which made all these things? You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become, you who received the law as ordained by angels, and yet did not keep it. This is the Lord's word. Would you bow with me, friends, and let's pray. Father in heaven, we come before you at this time, thanking you again for your word, the reading from the Old Testament and this reading from the New Testament. Again, reminding us, Lord, that we are not handling things that are insignificant or without weight, but we handle um, the history of your people and of your dealing with your people throughout the ages. And we consider it such a blessing, Father, to be able to meet in freedom tonight and sit in this building, to join over our computer, to be able to watch and to listen and think what a blessing it is. And we would ask, Father, that you would please preserve this blessing uh, that we Uh, have had recognized in this country and pray that we would be those who are quick to attend to these things knowing Lord that this is not a privilege many people share in this world and it may be a privilege that we will soon have challenged we do ask Father that you will grow us in our understanding of you and of your gospel of your dealing with your people we pray Father that where your word goes forward tonight across this land that your people will be blessed And again, we ask, Lord, that you would pour out your spirit, that you would embolden your people. And we pray, Father, that the witness of your church would shine bright once again. We ask, Father, that you would bring awakening to this land and that you would heal us by turning us back to yourself and away from our sin. Please help us, Father, as a church and as a nation, not to be stiff-necked no longer, but to be quiet and to listen, and to obey. We do pray that you would be with our brother Charlie and his wife Kay as they uh, will travel. We ask, Father, that your mercies be upon them, and I believe it's upon Kay's mother. We pray, Father, that uh, you'd be near to her in these last hours. And we do ask all of this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, Some may not know, I think it might be Kay's mother, as I was thinking about it, down in Louisiana, Charlie said uh, she's, uh, they believe she's on her deathbed, so they had asked for prayer earlier today. He may be gone this week, after all. 
Again, uh, we look tonight now to the Lord's Word. If you will look at Acts chapter 7, verses 44 through 53, we come to the end of Stephen's defense. A gifted man, one of the first deacons, full of grace and power, who was performing great wonders and signs among the people. The irony here is that this man, who was doing these wonders and signs, works commensurate with the gospel message that he was preaching, is opposed by men from what was called the synagogue of the freedmen. The one bringing the message of freedom is opposed by those of the synagogue of freedmen who will fight ultimately to maintain their bondage. It's really kind of ironic. Uh, The one thing we ought to understand is that idolatry always makes a person crazy. It makes people mad. When your focus and confidence are upon the wrong things, you can't think straight and you won't think straight. You won't. Listen to this. Uh, Matthew 11, 16 through 19, we're told this. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplace who call out to the other children and say, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, He has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Behold, a gluttonous man, and a drunkard, and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. John is the problem. We can't listen to him. Jesus is the problem. We can't listen to him. You see, they're like children. Nothing's ever good enough. No message, no messenger. Nothing's ever good enough. John is the problem. Jesus is the problem. And here in Acts chapter 7, Stephen is the problem. This man incessantly speaks against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Nazarene Jesus will destroy this place and the customs which Moses handed down to us. Again, friends, the problem was not with John the Baptist. The problem was not with our Lord Jesus. And the problem here is not with Stephen. He is not out to to subvert the Jewish faith. The problem is rather with the hearer and his misplaced confidence. Those whose confidence in security and happiness are in the wrong things will find a problem with those whose message and confidence are in the gospel. You can bank on that. You can bank on it. Stephen now answers their false charge that he was incessantly speaking against this holy place and the law and that Jesus will destroy this place and the customs which Moses handed down to us. He answers them. He first considers the history and the significance of the tabernacle and the temple. So in verses 44 through 47, listen to what Stephen says again. He says, Our fathers had the tabernacle of testimony in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern which he had seen. And having received it in their turn, our fathers brought it in with Joshua upon dispossessing the nations whom God drove out before our fathers until the time of David. David found favor in God's sight and asked that he might find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Before we, we, we consider, and, and I, again, I, I, I want to try to put you into the mind of what I think is happening uh, with these, the Sanhedrin and with uh, Stephen's accusers. It might help to understand um, what they're dealing with. Remember this, the temple and before the temple, the tabernacle, have been central to the life of Israel. Okay, Sometimes we can read these things and go, what's wrong with these people? Why are they so uptight? Imagine, however, 
uh, that the temple has always been there, not just from the time that the Sanhedrin, before whom Stephen stood at this moment, not just since the time that they were small, but when your great-grandparents were small. For hundreds of years, for well over 1,400 years, it's been at the center of religious life for generations in Israel. It's not a small thing. It's not an insignificant thing. Um, it's always been present. And so it's always been there at the center of all their religious life. Then I want you to think how folks react to discussions concerning hymns and replacing them with newer tunes. Have you ever been in a church where that's become an argument? You're going to change these hymns? What's wrong with you? You obviously don't fear the Lord. You're not doing right. And, and the, you can imagine the emotional attachment that, that, we've just wit that you witness when people start, you, you start tinkering with the music in a church and, um, and how it sets people off. Now imagine some guy comes along and he's preaching saying, you know, these things are going to become passe. <laughs> They're going away. And you can kind of understand why these people would be so upset. You become attached to the familiar, the comfortable. But when this happens, we need to ask ourselves, what are we really cherishing? What are we prizing? What are we esteeming? Sometimes we become too attached to forms and we forget what's behind these things. Right? And that's always a danger. That's always a danger in the church. If we are introducing that which is dangerous, wrong, we should be, by all means, uh, very careful, and we should resist those things that are wrong. But Stephen wasn't doing that, as we shall see. They are concerned that Stephen has said that the temple would come to an end. Jesus himself said this in Matthew 24, verse 2, Truly I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another which will not be torn down. Stephen has said that Jesus would change these customs. Things are going to change. Things must change because when the perfect comes, the inferior must go away. You see, this is important for us to understand. So if you turn over to Acts chapter 8 and 9, I just want to read a couple of verses to us. Acts chapter 8, verse 2, we are told this, A minister in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle which the Lord pitched not man. And then in chapter 9, verse 11, we are told this. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation. When do you take the training wheels off of a bicycle? It's when you no longer need the training wheels. So you can understand this is where Stephen is going with his line of argument. Again, he says in his speech, verse 44, Our fathers had the tabernacle of testimony in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern which he had seen. Again, he speaks of our fathers, and this is, this is really quite significant here. Uh, just point this out. He's been saying through this whole defense, he's saying our fathers, he identifies with the Jews, all through this, when we come to verse 51, he changes, and he's no longer speaking about our fathers. Now he's talking about your fathers. And that's significant. That'll come up later. They had the tabernacle of testimony uh, in the wilderness. Again, it's in the wilderness. Not before Abraham. Um, 
not before, rather, uh, the wilderness, but after, while in the wilderness. They didn't have it. Uh, Abraham didn't have it, nor did Isaac or Jacob, nor did Joseph, nor the patriarchs, nor Israel. For 400 years of slavery, there was no testimony of a tabernacle of testimony at all. It was not until Moses, their deliverer, brought them out of Egypt. They have not always had this tabernacle, yet remember how the Lord cared for them before they even had it. That, too, is significant because, again, what is their confidence uh, placed in? It's placed in the fact that we have the tabernacle, we have the temple now, this has always been here, and this is significant for us to live securely and be blessed of the Lord. And Stephen's pointing out, but you had the Lord's blessing before there was ever a tabernacle at all. You had the Lord's blessing then. Remember, God had entered into this covenant with Abraham. And it was not Abraham who sought God out, but it was God who sought Abraham out, the God of glory. He calls it the tabernacle of testimony, and it's called this by Stephen because the primary contents of the wilderness tabernacle of this tent were the Ark of the Covenant and the two covenant tablets it contained, that is, the Ten Commandments, the basic uh, stipulations of the Sinai Covenant. This tent would dwell in the midst of the twelve tribes of Israel, bearing witness of God, of his presence with them, and what he required of them. Furthermore, it was not Moses who came up with this idea, but God. God spoke to Moses and directed him to make it according to the pattern which he had seen. God said to Moses in Exodus 25, Let them construct a sanctuary for me, that I may dwell among them, according to all that I am going to show you as the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furniture, just so you shall construct it. It's called a pattern. It's a type. I remember the typewriter, right? You, you punch the button for W and a W, an arm with a W on it, smacks the, the ink ribbon and it leaves an imprint on the paper. Um, it's a type of things. For Christ, we are told in Hebrews 9.24, Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. The tabernacle was a picture of heaven. That's, that's what it does. It, it, so the Lord's presence is with his people. The, the, the stipulations of the covenant are there reminding them, oh yes, we have to keep the law, we must keep the law, or else we are sent out of this, this land. This tabernacle was with them in the wilderness. Stephen goes on to say in verse 45, And having received it, in their turn, our fathers brought it in with Joshua upon dispossessing the nations whom God drove out before our fathers until the time of David. They got the tabernacle of testimony from Moses and it was carried into the promised land with Joshua. They went into the promised land and God himself was fulfilling the promise. What had he said to Abraham? That I was going to make you slaves for 400 years in a foreign nation and then I'm going to bring you out and you're going to inhabit this land. He promised that he would give it to Abraham as a possession and to his descendants after him. And so what do we see, as Stephen points out, that it was God himself who drove out the nations, the tabernacle again reminding them of his presence and of what he required, and it was there until the time of David. David, however, if we go on in 46 and 47, we are told that David found favor in God's sight 
and asked that he might find a dwelling place for, for the God of Jacob, but it was Solomon who built a house for him. Simon Kistemacher had this to say. He says, During the period of the judges, the Israelites displayed little interest in worshiping the Lord. The ark remained in one place, in Kiriath-Jerim, and the tabernacle in another, in the city of Nob. David brought the ark to Jerusalem. You remember the whole incident of Uzzah reaching back, and David thought, we can get this, we can expedite this thing, right? Create a new cart, and we'll transport it quickly and easily. And God's anger burned against Uzzah. When it finally got to Jerusalem, David placed it in a tent that he had made for it, while the tabernacle was in Gibeon. Gibeon was located some five miles northwest of Jerusalem. As we read in 2 Samuel, notice that why David wanted to build a house for the Lord. It was because God had been very gracious to David. It was not a requirement that it be built, but David responds to the grace of the Lord. Here I am. I have peace with my enemies. I live in a house of cedar, and the ark of God sits in a tent. Something's not right about this. He's been very good to me. He responds to the Lord's gracious dealings with him by desiring to make a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. It was not because he had built or wanted to build the or build the temple, but because God was and had been very gracious to him. God's gracious dealings with us is what should move us to acts of devotion to the Lord. Do you see do you see the motivation here on on what should be driving the Lord's people to these things? Again, it had become something greater than what it should have been. It was something that they were placing their hope and their confidence in. Something external, something we do, something that if I I do this, then, then God blesses me. And how often in the Lord's church these very things happen and we lose sight of, of why we're doing what we're doing. i got to go to church because if I don't go to church, God won't bless my week. Really? i gotta, I got to go pray and i got to do no. How about, how, let me, let me back up. Your, your, your wives, you, your husbands, and, and you, you have date night. How do you ladies feel when your, your husband has, has to go on a date with you? Gee, I feel so loved. I feel so cherished. When you, you have to do these things. No, you, you, the wife, she wants her husband to love her and say, let me do this with you. Let me take you here. Let me do this. They want to feel cherished. And, and, and here, we're, we're obligated to do these things. Is the way they're, they're speaking of it. We've got to do these things. And yet, David doesn't do this because he feels obligation. David is wanting to build the temple because the Lord has been so extremely kind to him. David would not, however, be the one to build it. He was a warrior king. He was ultimately a man of bloodshed. But his son Solomon would build it. Solomon, a king of peace. David would spend the rest of his life stockpiling the necessary supplies for the temple. Has it ever amazed you that David wasn't jealous of Solomon? It has me. He was the one who had the idea. Hey, this was my idea. I want to do this. But when Nathan says, no, you're not the one to do this, Solomon will. David's just rejoicing that somebody is going to do it. 
and so he spends the rest of his life stockpiling the necessary supplies for the temple so that Solomon could build it. The temple, the temple was important, but it would take on a greater importance than it should. It was a copy, a pattern of something greater to come. New Bible Dictionary said this, Theologically, the tabernacle as a dwelling place of God on earth is of immense importance as being the first in the series. Now listen to this. There's the tabernacle, then it was the temple, then it was the incarnation. Remember Jesus. We've beheld his glory. He's dwelt among us. The word there is he tented among us. God came and dwelt among his people. Jesus Christ dwelt among his people. After the incarnation, it's the body of the individual, and then it's the church. It follows from the fact that the tabernacle was built to God's design as a copy and shadow of heavenly things, that its symbols conveyed spiritual meaning to the Israelites of the time. They idolized the furniture. They idolized the temple, and they lost sight of the spiritual meaning of all of these things. And they became attached to the external and lost sight of the internal uh, inter, uh, internal aspect, the significance of these things that they represented. The tabernacle and temple were rich with meaning, pointing eyes and understanding to the one who blessed. Abraham, the patriarchs, Moses, David, the blessing was not because of the structures, but pointed to the one who does bless. Was it grand? Absolutely. Was it beautiful? Yes. Significant? Yes. Yet, with all of that being said, the temple was still insufficient. In what way? It was not big enough. It was not big enough. The things that we do in devotion for our God, our great efforts and our sacrifices, are never big enough for our God. As I was writing this, I had Handel's Messiah playing in the background one of the most beautiful pieces of, of music and I'm listening to it and I'm listening to it and I'm thinking this is so grand this is so beautiful and you know it's not nearly big enough for our God you can make an, a comparison with that in the temple Handel's Messiah is beautiful arguably one of the greatest pieces of liturgical music ever written but what is it compared to who our God is? We could say it's but squeaks and groans. The Lord is worth and worthy of so much more uh, than even that. The temple, while men adore it, was not enough. It was insufficient and only of secondary importance. And I believe this is Stephen's point as we continue on here. Uh, they are taking the attitude, we have a place for our God. We've got God here in a box. We've got him in a building. He's in the center. Remember how they always did this too, when they're going out to war. Hey, quick, get the ark. Let's, let's get it going in front of us. Like a talisman, a luck charm, right? We're going to parade this thing around. Then we can be sure to conquer our enemies. We have a place for our God, as if he needed anything from us. But Stephen goes on to say, in verse 48, However, the Most High does not dwell in houses made by human hands. As the prophet says, Heaven is my throne, and earth is the footstool of my feet. 
What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what place is there for my repose? Was it not my hand which made all these things? Why are you obsessed with the tabernacle and the temple? Why are you upset with what Stephen has said? Stephen here has quoted from Isaiah 66, 1-2, from the Greek. The verses he quotes are quite significant. Simon Kistemacher again had this to say. He said, Isaiah's prophecy immediately follows a passage in which the prophet has spoken of a new heaven and a new earth. Isaiah now speaks of judgment and asks where the Israelites will build a house for God or where he may have a resting place. God says he dwells in heaven and on earth and that all things have been made by him. By asking these questions, God implies that the temple will be destroyed, but worship will continue. Who are the true worshipers? God says, I am pleased with those who are humble and repentant, who fear me and obey me. What is what in the world is Stephen saying to his accusers? You are fixated on this building, and God is so much bigger. The building itself is insufficient to be able to contain God. Where will God be worshipped? Where is God? God is not bound to a particular place of worship. Jesus said this to the Samaritan woman. He said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship uh, the Father. He is not with the proud. He is not with the stiff-necked, but with the humble and contrite of spirit and with those who tremble at his word. He's just answered their question. Is the temple necessary? The temple is not necessary. The temple is not the source of our blessings. The temple is not what makes us great. But the God who can't be contained in the temple, the God who has blessed, the God who sought us out, this is what where our blessing has come from. Why are you so fixated on these things and you ignore the God of glory that can't be contained in a house built by men's hands? And to this point, Stephen has given them their history, a shared history. He has refrained from personal application to them, and that all changes here in our verses 51 through 53. I read one place where a commentator said, um, you, you notice that all of a sudden he wraps things up real quick. <laughs> he, he suggests, this commentator suggested that Stephen, as he's, as he's speaking to the Sanhedrin, he can tell they're getting a little tired of hearing me talk. And so now, now he, he ramps it up. Why are they so upset with Stephen? Has he done or said something wrong? No, rather, what he has done was to bring to light the fact that his accusers and judges, the majority of them, are spiritually dead. We say, idolatry will make you stupid. They're furious. They're furious at what he's saying. Their complaints, their charges, were but mere excuses used to cover up the fact that they were spiritually dead. Listen to what he says. And notice here now, he no longer speaks about our fathers. He speaks about your fathers. Stephen is not going to be lumped into this, and for obvious reasons, because he's gotten it. He understands that the temple, the tabernacle, and all these things that have come before 
all the customs. They were all merely preparing the way for the Lord Jesus. And by God's grace, Stephen gets it, but they don't. And they're accusing him of being subversive when it's these men who are being stiff-necked and uncircumcised of heart and ear. They will not and do not listen to the Lord. And that's why they're furious, because Stephen has now poked their idol in the eye. And they do not tolerate it. You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You who received the law as ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. He's leveled the hammer, but it's not unloving, friends. It's not unloving. I'm amazed at his boldness that he would save this. And, and again, as we go on, and we'll look at this in the next few weeks, but as, as we consider these things, look at how Stephen responds. He doesn't want them. He doesn't want them to suffer the pains of hell. He's actually quite a loving man. You ever notice that when Jesus deals with the woman at the well, how kind, how patient, how gracious he is? Who was he most abrupt with? the Pharisees, those who were hard-boiled in their self-righteousness. Right? The Lord is only as hard as ever as he needs to be. Stephen delivers the goods. He delivers it because he is concerned for them. They need to know exactly what they are and what they've been doing. It's not a pleasant task, but it's one that had to be done for the sake of their souls. He levels the hammer he calls them stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. That is, being stiff-necked, they are spiritually stubborn, like Israel of old, where God called them obstinate and stiff-necked in Exodus 33. They do not submit to the Lord. They, have been, they are disobedient to the Lord. He is making an accusation. You have been disobedient to the Lord. You have not paid attention to what the temple represents. You have not been learning your lessons. You have been idolizing this thing. You have not been submitting to the lessons that were there for us to learn. He calls them also uncircumcised in heart and ears. They claim to be the children of Abraham. They are circumcised in their flesh, but they are not like Abraham. Jesus said, if you are Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. Like what? Like how about believe the Lord's word? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. But these, these are Jews externally. Their hearts were far from the Lord. They were caught up in forms and rituals and customs and self-righteousness. But they were not truly righteous. And Stephen continues with them that they are always resisting the Holy Spirit always opposed to the Holy Spirit. How? And I think this is interesting, and I think this, this deserves a, a closer look at some point. Anyways, how do you resist the Holy Spirit? Well, I had that warm sensation in my bosom, and I just, you know, and I didn't obey it. Right? We touched on this this morning about um, listen to your heart. 
I think that's so nefarious, that kind of language and this kind of understanding of the Holy Spirit. That, that you've got this, this private line and he's giving you special and secret messages that only you know about. It's so dangerous. Listen to how they're resisting the Holy Spirit. They're always resisting the Holy Spirit. God's, God would send his prophets speaking to them. And Stephen says, you resisted him. You resisted God's spirit. You're doing just as your fathers did. What did they do? They refused to listen to the prophets. They refused here to listen to Stephen. Here are gospel ministers, prophets and, and, and priests, people who would speak the things of the Lord that God gave them to speak. And they would say, what are you talking about? We're not listening to you. So in our day, when we hear about people saying, well, you're resisting the Holy Spirit. You know how you resist the Holy Spirit today? Don't bother coming to church. Don't bother sitting under the word. Don't bother picking up your Bible and reading it. When, when, when somebody brings a, a faithful message from the word of God and you've checked it against the word of God, you say, yeah, I don't care. I'm going to do what I want anyways. That's what it means to be stiff-necked and uncircumcised of heart and ear. That's how you resist the spirit of God. It's not that warm, burning feeling in your bosom. It's not a tingle going up and down your backbone. It is the word of the Lord going forward, calling you to repent and to believe upon Jesus Christ. That's how you heed the Holy Spirit. That's how you heed. And if you don't do that, if you don't heed the Spirit, you're resisting the Spirit of God. But it's centered on the word of God. And we've been learning this in Second Peter. The very same thing. What do we listen to? We listen to the word of the prophets made more sure rather than the word of false teachers coming up in the church telling us all these ooey, gooey, tingly, scintillating things. Right? It's the word of God. And these men resisted the word of God as spoken by the prophets. This is why it's significant. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? Do you notice that? He says, you're always resisting the Holy Spirit and are doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one. They refused to listen to the prophets. They refused to listen to Stephen. It was not Stephen who was the problem, but it was them. And this frequently happens in churches. A disgruntled person takes his anger out on the pastor and the elders. The problem, however, is not them, but the individual stuck on some belief or conviction that is unscriptural. Stephen had been saying, our, and now he is saying, your, you're like your fathers. Stephen has not resisted the spirit. Rather, he has heeded the message. And that's why he has, he's working signs and wonders. That's why he's preaching. And he's upsetting all these people. Because the kingdom of God has come among sinful men. And they're rejecting it. And that's why they're going to do to Stephen just what they did with the prophets. We're going to brutalize you and kill you and make you shut up because we're sick and tired of your incessant going on about how the Lord is going to come and change everything. 
The world doesn't like it because it doesn't fit their narrative and it doesn't fit their idol idolatry and their, their understanding of where peace and prosperity comes from. So how did they resist the Holy Spirit? They persecuted the prophets, even killing those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous ones. Remember of the righteous one. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 23. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks and under her wings, and you were unwilling. Their fathers killed the prophets who forecast the coming of the Messiah. But these, to whom Stephen speaks now, these are the ones who have betrayed him and are his murderers. You who received the law as ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. He's just convicted them. He's drawn a circle around them. They can't get out of this. By God's wisdom and God's grace, Stephen was equipped here to bring the gospel message and to to bring their history to bear upon them and to say to them, you've received the laws ordained by angels and you are disobedient. You are stiff-necked and you are uncircumcised and you're like your fathers. You kill everyone whom God has sent to speak to you. You have resisted the Holy Spirit. Your judgment will be upon your heads now. My friends, what was the real problem? It was not Stephen. It was not Stephen who was working signs and wonders and restoring people's physical health and leading people to Jesus Christ. This is the work of the church. This is the work the Lord has called us to. The problem was these very religious people were still very dead in their self-righteousness and sin. The blessings we have today are not because we are in the OPC. Blessings we have are not because we're, we are a reformed church or that we are part of a Protestant legacy. The blessings we have today are the same as the blessings they had then in Stephen's day. It is because the Lord has looked down upon us in favor. That's where our blessing comes from. We have to be very careful not to become attached to forms and to ex external things and to think that God is somehow only present <laughs> right here in our little church. God is bigger than this. He's bigger than this local congregation. He's bigger than this denomination. And the Lord is saving his people. He is saving them because he is good. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, again, we thank you for your goodness to us. And we do thank you for... Um, your dealings with us. I, I do thank you, Father, for being a part of a denomination and, and, and having the, the confessions and the creeds. I do thank you for all of these things. But, Father, you were saving people long before these things. You were blessing your people and calling them out. I pray, Father, that we would uh, be careful as we have looked to these past five or six weeks at, at Stephen's defense. We see, Father, how often we are trapped in so many of these external things, and yet, Father, we miss 
we miss the fact that it is how you have revealed yourself to us, but these things are not the source of blessing, but you are. We ask that our hearts would rejoice in you and that we would call others, Father, to rejoice in you. Again, we thank you for this word and now pray your blessing upon it and that it would have its effect in our lives for your glory. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.